no matter who you are or, or what uh, station of life you find yourself, what age you are, how much you have or how little you have, what unites us and is common to all of us is that we have a, a heart that is is uniquely susceptible to uh, to pride, to trusting in our own schemes, to trusting in our own plans, to trusting in the things that we have or in the uh, the ideas that we uh, uh, that we come up with. Um, it's it's just in our nature and our sinful hearts. It's rightly been said that our hearts are our hearts are idle factories. They can make an idol out of out of pretty much anything. And so. You know, when you uh, when something happens or, or some tragedy in, in your life uh, rears its head or not even a tragedy, but the possibility of a tragedy or, or a possibility of something not turning out the way that that we think it should or in our lives, uh, what we do is we go to planning, we go to scheming, we go to 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 trying to come up with plan B or a backup to uh, to uh, make sure that we have we have something in the background just in case that this doesn't work out and there's nothing inherently wrong with planning there's nothing inherently wrong with um, you know thinking about the future and and what would we do in this situation or that situation um, but there comes times there comes times in our lives when there's absolutely nothing that we can do but trust in but trusting God. And uh, I think that God, in, in, a, in a lot of instances, especially in my own life, he has, um, he has systematically taken away the things that I try to trust in, the plans that I make. Well, okay, if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. And, and you know, I can, I can trade this in and I can use this to, to uh, kind of fix, uh, fix this problem so I won't be, you know, I won't hurt or anything like that. And, and God has, has systematically in several times in my life just kick the kick the the legs of the table out from under me and he has taken away all the things that I attempt to trust in so that I would learn to trust in him I would learn to uh, to understand that he alone is trustworthy even if my plans all come to naught even if my scheming and my my plotting and you know the the plans that I have for the future and the 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 money that I put away that it's going to, you know, help me in my later years. Even if all of that goes to pot, uh, I have a God who has made promises to me in His Son, and that is what I'm called to trust in. And that is, you know, if you're a, if you're like me, that's not an easy thing to do. That's something that we grow in, and God is growing us in that. Well, today we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jacob, and uh, Jacob is, we've been walking through, if you've been been paying attention to our study of Jacob's life so far, you've uh, you've seen God doing some amazing things in him. When, when all this started, Jacob, you know, Jacob was nothing more than, well, let's be honest, he was a, he was a low-life swindler. I mean, he schemed and plotted for everything that he had. Uh, he had no problem cheating his brother, deceiving his father, uh, just just doing whatever it took to get whatever he wanted. Uh, the only one Jacob ever looked out for was himself, and he was he was pretty good and always coming out on top. It seemed he was pretty good at always coming out on top. He 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 seemed he seemed like he was in it for himself in every aspect, and it. It seems really strange to me, but this is the man that God chose to be his promise bearer. It is obviously not because of his goodness. I mean, it's nothing more than than God's grace. And we've seen that before, that he chose Jacob to be the promised seed, the promise bearer, rather than, rather than Esau. But here's what I want you to see. God hasn't just, uh, he hasn't just left Jacob the way that he is. We saw when this started, Jacob has been a, a heel grabber, a deceiver from the beginning, but God hasn't left him the way that he is. Uh, we've seen through his time uh, spent in Laban's house. I uh, remember he, he's getting cheated uh, himself by the master swindler, Laban. Uh, and God has been working on Jacob's heart through all of this. He's He's been repeating, repeatedly putting Jacob into a position where he was forced to trust God. Um, he was forced to trust God for his prosperity, for his well-being, for, for all those things. And, and then we saw uh, in the, the last chapter when 
when things got bad with Laban and his family, uh, God once again stepped in to protect his promise. He stopped Laban from harming Jacob and his family when, when you know, when Laban and, and his men chased him down. Uh, we saw that in the last chapter. God appeared to Laban in a dream and told him, yeah, you, you, better not, you better not overstep your authority and mess with my man here. And what we're going to see... <clears throat> Today is that that God continues to work in Jacob in this chapter, chapter 32. In this section, I don't know if we're going to do the whole chapter or if I'm going to stop. I, I, I feel like I need to stop around the 21st verse because there's an important section at the end of this chapter where, where God actually confronts Jacob, and I want to take that all by itself. But in this first section, we're going to see, we're going to see God pushing Jacob further and further toward trusting in him. God is really pushing Jacob toward a confrontation with him. Uh, in this chapter, we may not get to it in this lesson, but in this chapter, God is going to come face to face with Jacob. Jacob is going to Jacob is going to come into the presence of the all-powerful God. And he's going to be changed forever. He's going to be changed forever into the man of faith that the promise bearer is called to be. And, and what we can take from this is that, that God calls men by by grace through faith, even in the midst of their sin and their failings, we know what kind of man Jacob was, but God does not leave his children there. We have, we've seen God step in and protect his promise over and over and over again in the life of Abraham, in the life of Isaac, and now in the life of Jacob. But God is not just the the cosmic promise protector you know he, he he's not the one who uh, who is going to going to keep his word and he's going to let his children just run amok and follow follow behind them cleaning up all the messes that they make he he is a god that protects his promises but he's also a god that works in the hearts of his people works in the hearts of his children and that's what we're going to see we're going to see the effect of that today i want to show you that before we get to the actual confrontation between jacob and god uh we left jacob last time we saw jacob he was leaving laban's house he was leaving laban's land you remember that from the last chapter he had been saved of course by god uh from laban's sword and they he and laban made a covenant never to cross into each other's lands again to do harm and uh as jacob continues his journey uh back to the land of his father back to the land of promise uh, what do we see? We see immediately in these first two verses something that's very important, and it's 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 a little strange, really, because verses one and two in chapter thirty-two seem like they're just stuck there for no reason. I mean, it's just out of the blue. But what it's going to show us is that God is still watching over, still watching over Jacob, and that's going to be important in the uh, the uh, the events that are gonna that are gonna come. If you read verse one and two, it says. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, is how it's pronounced, uh, as Mahanaim, uh, the, the emphasis on the last syllable. And so what we see here in these verses is that some of the same terms here are found in in Jacob's vision at Bethel. Do you remember remember that when Jacob uh, was on his way to Laban's house and he had a vision, a dream there in Bethel, and God appeared to him, uh, showed him the vision of a ladder reaching up to heaven. The angels of God are ascending and descending on that ladder. If you go back and I think it's right off the top of my head, I'm thinking Genesis 28. It may not be, but it's right in there somewhere. If you remember that uh, that lesson, the point of that vision was that even though unseen, it was a place in the middle of nowhere. If you remember that, it was, there was nothing there. It was nothing there at all. Uh, even in that place in the middle of nowhere, although unseen, God was still working to protect his promises to Jacob. The angels ascending and descending on the ladder, uh, doing God's will, they were they were engaged in ministering and protecting the promise, watching over the promise bearer. At Bethel is where God promised to be with Jacob and to bring him back to the land. And here we see after 
20 years of being with Laban, after all that Jacob's been through with Laban, God is still keeping his promise. The angels are still at the ready. They're still working to protect the promise of God. God has not. Jacob might have forgotten the promise. I don't think he did, but it's possible that he might have. Uh, He might have forgotten the promise after 20 years of being with Laban and being cheated and all the things that had gone through, but God had not forgotten. God had not forgotten the promise that he made, and the angels were still watching watching over Jacob. That uh, that phrase, Mahanaim, is is in, in the dual. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a plural, and there's a dual which uh which means two like if you talk about your your hands you that would be in the dual form showing that you have two hands and so what he is going to do the the mahanaim means two camps and old jacob i mean the guy he he still just doesn't get it i mean if you remember in bethel god told him i'll be with you to bring you back to this land the point that god was making there was I'll be with you in your journey. I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll be with you, you know, in your sojourns with Laban until you till I bring you back to this land. And if you remember in, at Bethel, Jacob revered the place. Remember Bethel, thinking that God was there in some some special way. And he does the same thing here on his way back. He marvels at the place and calls it God's camp as if he, you know, he had stumbled onto another sacred spot. I mean, he's, wow, how fortunate Jacob must be to keep finding these places, you know, these places of God. But the reality is that that God is with Jacob wherever he goes. Uh, Jacob still can't see it yet, but but he will. He is being brought back to the land of promise, and he calls this place Mahanaim, which means two camps. It's in the dual form. It means two camps. And this, uh, there's a debate about what two camps actually means. And really, you can take it several different ways. You know, is he talking about his camp and the camp of these angels? Uh, is he talking about Laban's camp and the camp of the angels? There's some people that say as he, he, he comes across this place as he's walking off and, and Laban's camp is still in sight. Um, uh, a mahana is often, it's often used as a, a military camp, you know, in places like First Chronicles 12, 22 and Psalm 34 and Psalm 91. Uh, and so if that's the case, I mean, and there's a good argument that can be made that it is, then what you see here is an, an army camp, a military camp of angels that are that are uh, encamped to protect Jacob, that are uh, encamped to watch over him. And if this is so, man, it should have given Jacob rest, knowing that God's army is with him as the promise bearer. Now, there's a lot of different commentary on that, on that, those verses. There's a lot of different arguments as to what the two camps means and what the angels are doing there. Um, and, and so, you know, I, rather than get into all the minutia of that, I think it's, it's safe for us to say that this has been put here. I mean, it seems strange that that verses 1 and 2, they show us this heavenly camp of angels that Jacob sees. And then in verse 3, it's like the scene just changes out of nowhere. And Jacob is preparing to meet his brother Esau. It's like whoever wrote this, you know, we know it's Moses that wrote it, and we know he wrote it under the inspiration of God. But if you were to, if you were to read a book like this, you would say, well, whoever wrote this, I mean, they were just bouncing back and forth. They really didn't know what they were doing. They had no theme, whatever. It's not, it's there for a purpose. And we can see that purpose, but it seems like it's just stuck there. But the point is that God is still watching over and protecting Jacob. And this is important. It's important for us to understand because Jacob has just gotten out of the frying pan with Laban. He is, he has gotten out of danger. He has come out of being swindled and, and cheated for 20 years. But now he is most certainly headed for the fire with his brother Esau. We're going we're gonna to see something miraculous in his meeting with Esau, but we can't chalk it up to simply Esau's good nature and his, you know, Jacob's luck. Uh, it is because God is protecting his promise, and that is demonstrated for us by this angel camp that is uh, set at the ready to protect Jacob. And once again, I don't know if I, I went into enough detail with it, 
But Jacob again says, this is God's camp as if he has stumbled upon this, this holy place uh, when the reality is that God's camp is wherever Jacob is. Jacob, even though they're unseen, even though you know they're not always vis- visible, God promised to be with Jacob wherever he goes to bring him back to the land and wherever Jacob's feet are are stepping, God's camp is with him. God's angels are protecting him. God is protecting his promise. Doesn't that give you some doesn't that give you some rest, some peace? Because, you know, uh, there's a lot to be said. I know we're talking about Jacob and we're talking about Genesis and the Old Testament, but you and I are also, if we're in Christ, we are the promise bearers of God. We we bear the promise that he has given us in Christ. And we bear the, uh, we bear the righteousness of God. When he sees us, he looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. We're not just orphans. We're not, we're not, uh, uh, we're not uh, a beaten down children or or uh, uh, you know a poor wretched you know I'm thinking about I'm thinking about homeless people on Skid Row or something like that. We are <clears throat> we are children of God in Jesus Christ because of the righteousness of Christ and whatever goes on in our lives we bear that promise of God. So these these angels are um, showing us here in the first two verses before we ever get into this huge trial that Jacob is, Jacob is about to go through, we, we see that these angels are, are ministering spirits, just like Hebrews says the angels are for us who inherit salvation. They are ministering spirits for us. Our promise is protected. We see over and over again that God protected his promise to Abraham. He protected it for Isaac and now for Jacob from enemies that would attack it from the outside and from our own sinfulness on, on the inside. So as we go into verse three, it's going to look like the scene is changing, but really it's not changing. It's showing us the the trial that's about to come to pass and the reason why this angel army, this camp of angels is there with uh, is there with Jacob. Um, in verse three, let me just read verse three through five. It says, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. This is what he told them. Thus you shall, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob takes it upon himself to send word to his brother. Now, this is very interesting to me. Esau, it says there, is living now in Edom. He's no longer living with Isaac. He's uh, sent to his brother. In verse 3, it says, he sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. That is, Edom is going to be, in the rest of Scripture, in the rest of the Old Testament, is going to be uh, connected with Esau. Edom uh, represents the people of Esau. This is Esau's land. Now, Jacob is not heading to Edom, remember? He's heading back to the land of promise, the land of Isaac. He's heading back to the land that is his that he's an heir of. He's, he could just go home. I mean, he doesn't have to send word to his brother in Edom. He doesn't have to send anything, any messengers to his brother. He could just sneak home and remain under the protection of his father, Isaac. Um, but not only does he send word to his brother, look what it says. Isn't this interesting? He, he tells his servants, his messengers, uh, he tells them to call Esau, my Lord. And he tells them to call Jacob your servant. There, he says it in verse 3 and 4. It says, uh, Jacob's heading back to the land of promise. He says to his, his messengers, Thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. Uh, he is calling him Lord and him the servant. This is this is exactly opposite of what Isaac's promise to Jacob said. You remember? He he said that Jacob would be the ruler 
over his brothers. And Jacob stole uh, the inheritance, stole the firstborn preeminent station of the firstborn son. But here, Jacob is humbling himself. He's calling Esau the Lord, calling himself Esau's servant. He, he tells Esau where he's been all this time and how God has prospered him. He's got servants and all this. And then he says that, uh, that he is sending word so that he might find favor in Esau's sight. You'll see that phrase, finding that I might find favor in your sight. The word favor is also used to, uh, uh, is also used for grace. When you see grace uh, in the Old Testament, it's the same Hebrew word translated as favor. This is a phrase that is repeatedly used in scripture by a subordinate to his superior. Jacob, that I may find favor in your sight. He is humbling himself before Esau. Now, I find all this very interesting. It seems like Jacob genuinely wants to be reconciled with his brother. He doesn't have to send word. He could just go home. I mean, he could just go home right past Esau, uh, I mean, right to Isaac and seek the protection of his father in his house, uh, get his inheritance and do all those. He didn't have to send word at all. He certainly didn't have to humble himself like he did. I mean, he could send word and say, your, uh, you know, your Lord Jacob has come, the, the, the firstborn of Isaac, you know, he could have done all that. But I think what we're seeing here is that, that God has been working on Jacob's heart. Uh, throughout his time at Laban's, God has been working on him. Jacob, he has, Jacob hasn't become the godly man that he's called to be yet. So I'm not saying that, uh, but he, he isn't, he still isn't the picture of the, uh, of the promise bearer that we expect, but he is certainly a long way from the schemer that left the promised land 20 years ago. Back then, I mean, he, he could have cared less about the, about reconciliation with Esau, uh, but God isn't through with him yet. That's what I what I want you to see today. God is God is not just the promise protector. He is the one who works in the hearts of his people. God's going to continue to force Jacob into a place where he can do nothing but trust in God. And he, he's going to grow him into uh, into the promise bearer. And we're going to see here in the, the end of this chapter that he is going to step in and supernaturally change Jacob to be a man of faith in the same way that he supernaturally changes us today as we're born again. In uh, uh, verse 6 through 8, uh, it says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. Recognize the phrase two camps. Mahanaim thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So, First of all, verses 6 through 8, Jacob gets some unsettling news from the messengers that he sent out. His servants return, of course, and they, they tell him, um, we, uh, we went to find Esau, and uh, we were going to tell him what you said, and turns out he's on his way to, he's on his way to meet you. And, and by the way, he's bringing 400 men with him. Now, if, if that's the news you receive, I promise you, Jacob is right to be afraid because really this can, this can only mean one thing. Esau is coming to kill me. You know, think about it for a minute. 400 men was an army in those days. I mean, remember that Abraham, uh, previously in Genesis, Abraham took only 318 men with him to fight the five armies that kidnapped Lot from Sodom. And so now here comes Esau with more men than that, with 400 men, and he's coming to meet Jacob. So, I mean, if you're Jacob, this is not a, this is not a welcoming committee. This is not a, a, hey, brother, glad you're home. He's bringing 400 men for a reason. I mean, what would you think he was going to do? The last thing that Jacob remembers about home was that Esau vowed to kill me. Esau wanted me dead and swore that he was going to kill me. So Jacob does what any of us would do. He splits his family and herds, thinking that if Esau attacks one of them, this is what he says, if Esau attacks one of them, at least the other camp would get away. He splits it into two camps. Now, 
There is a lot of debate about whether Jacob should have done this or not. Uh, some people think that Jacob was demonstrating a lack of faith here, and I guess it's possible. Uh, some say that Jacob had, I mean, he had the promise of God, and, and he saw the angel camp that was protecting him. He should have just rocked on and let Esau come, uh, trusting in the promise of God. And by, by splitting his family, that showed a lack of faith on Jacob's part. It's something that he shouldn't have done. Um, I have a hard time thinking that. I've, I've mulled this over and prayed through it uh, quite a bit o- over the past week, and I've read a bunch of uh, commentaries and a bunch of different books on Genesis and, and things that different people say. Uh, I just can't come to that conclusion because if that were the case, if, if Jacob should not have split his forces, should not have split his family into two camps, then the lesson that we would learn today from this is that when we have a promise of God, we are to do nothing. We are to absolutely do nothing. Um, I have a hard time with that. Uh, But even more important than that, it tells us in the text the reason that Jacob split his people into two camps. The text itself right here in Genesis tells us that he was concerned about saving lives. He said that if one if if uh, one camp was attacked, at least the other one would get away. He wasn't scheming here about the best way to help himself. Uh, he, he wasn't planning on uh, um, using all these people as shields for, for him to get away or something like that. Uh, it seems like he was genuinely concerned about his servants and his family and his herds. Uh, what, I, what I see here is I think it's another example of how Jacob's heart has changed over the years that he has been with Laban. He is now, I mean, he's demonstrating a, a concern and a care for for those people that are under his charge. And man, that's uncharacteristic for the Jacob that we know from Genesis so far. And it, you can't help but see that uh, there is some connection between Jacob splitting his his people into two camps and the angel uh, the the place where he saw the angel army, the angel camp that he named two camps. And so there are some people that are going to take this to mean he was doing what he learned to do or what he thought was necessary to do that he learned from the meeting with the angels or so. I can't prove any of that. I can't I can't, you know, demonstrate that any of that is the case, but what I can demonstrate is that it seems like the writer of Genesis, seems like Moses in writing this is pointing to the fact that Jacob has good motives in uh, splitting his people. He is concerned about their lives. He is concerned about their well-being. And so what we see here is uh, what we see here is <clears throat> Jacob is uh, is being pushed further and further to be the man of God that uh, that God wants him to be. And the next verse, I mean, the very next section after this, we're going to see another example of how Jacob has has been changed. And so <clears throat> all this kind of flows together. And I, and I see this as the context seems to draw out the pattern that what we're seeing here is Jacob is not the same man that he used to be. And all of this is going to culminate in his confrontation with God um, where they when they wrestle all night long at the end of this. Uh, so what we're going to see, we see another example here after all this takes place, uh, after he makes preparations for Esau's impending attack to, to uh, you know, to, uh, to save as much life as he can, uh, he does something that is so uncharacteristic for Jacob. Uh, he prays. Uh, you may not have noticed this in all the time that we've talked about Jacob and we've looked at Jacob's life, but this is the first time in the text of Genesis that Jacob prays. Um, at Bethel, when when God made his promise to Jacob, now Jacob made a deal with him. He said, you know, okay, if you, if you do all this for me and you do all that, then I, I'll make you my God and all those things. But but uh, this is the first time that he drops to his knees and calls out to God for help. Jacob is, we are watching Jacob quickly come to the end of himself. He's, he's realizing that he, can't, that he can't do anything on his own. He, he has been backed into a corner. 
And there doesn't seem to be any escape. Understand, he has been delivered from Laban, but now Esau, his brother, who hates his guts, the last thing he remembers, is streaming toward him with 400 men, and all he can do is split his family apart, you know, so that he can protect one or the other and fall down on his face and pray that God would help him. This prayer that he prays, it's one that's often studied because of its, I mean, its sincerity and its its humility. This is definitely not the same Jacob that we have seen before in Genesis. So as we look at this prayer, let's take it apart piece by piece and and look at it. It shows us it shows us the heart of a man with nothing left to trust in. Uh, he starts off by, of course, addressing God. But look how he does so. In verse 9, it says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Now, the first thing, this is just an address. He's addressing the God to whom he's praying. But look how he does so. Uh, he, he looks back at God's faithfulness to his word, and, and he prays with confidence, knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He calls him the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. If you've been following along through these lessons of Genesis, you I mean, you don't have to think too hard to remember the miraculous works of God in the lives of Abraham and Isaac. God continually intervened when they were facing, when Abraham and Isaac were facing insurmountable odds from the outside, and God even stepped in when their own sinful hearts got in the way. Both men lied. Both men were saved from their wives being taken. You know, we we, we talked about those stories. Jacob is remembering and calling upon the faithfulness uh, of God. God has been faithful to his promise no matter what, and Jacob is recognizing that as part of God's character. Really, that's what we're doing today. I mean, we're reading, right now we're reading the inspired account of God's faithfulness to his promise as we look at the life of Jacob and we look at the situation of Jacob. And because we are in Jesus Christ, we know that we are also his promise bearers. So, We can look back at God's faithfulness to Abraham, God's faithfulness to Isaac, God's faithfulness to Jacob, and we can call upon the same God knowing that he is unchangeable and will always, will always be faithful to his word. Not only does Jacob call upon the promise-keeping God, the God of Abraham, the God who was with Isaac, but he reminds God of the promise and the command that he specifically made to Jacob. Now, well, when I say that that he reminds him, you know, I, of course, we all know that, that God doesn't really need to be reminded. But, but Jacob is praying God's promise back to him, God's command back to him, so that Jacob will remember the promise. And Jacob will remember that he, right now, even though it, it looks bleak, it looks like he is about to die, it looks like everything that he has, everything that he loves is about to be wiped out. He is actually in the will of God because it is God that commanded him to go. It's God that commanded him to go home. This this faithful God has made Jacob a promise and a command, and that promise will be kept. Look what it said in <clears throat> verse 9. He said, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. He is he has been given a command. Jacob is following that command. So no matter what happens, if Esau comes and wipes him out, he is still in the will of God because he is following the command of God to return to his home. God gave him a command that he's following, and he's going back to the land in obedience to God's word to him. Jacob Jacob is facing what he thinks is certain death. And, and Esau is charging straight for him with 400 men, and he's praying to God, you are the God who told me to come back to the land so that you would do me good. Uh, it's almost like, it's not this way, but it's almost like Jacob is... It, Jacob is, uh, is saying, well, hey, you told me to come. When the reality is what we see here is Jacob is finally, he is finally without a scheme. He's finally without a plan. I mean, he's obeyed God 
And God has brought him to the position where he has nothing else to trust in. He has nothing else to trust in but God. Uh, I think that's precisely the point. Have you ever noticed that when you do all that you can to, to live for God and, and, and obey his commands, chase after his will and his law, things just seem like they get harder. I mean, all of a sudden, you have more enemies. You, you have circumstances that seem like they're spiraling out of control. It seems like everything, everything just starts hitting the fan. I mean, if you've ever experienced this, it, it very well could be that God is using all these things to grow your trust in Him. It is just the nature of the human heart to always have a backup plan. I mean, it's easy to say, God, I'm going to trust in you in this situation and believe your promise. But the whole time, if you're like me, you're making plans in case it doesn't work out. You know, I'm making schemes in my mind in case it doesn't work out. God has a way of backing us up against the wall and taking everything that we trust in away until he is he is the only thing that we have. He is the only one that can deliver and deliver. He does. Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob recognizes and praise back to God, his commands and promises. And, and then our buddy Jacob, the schemer, the trickster, he opens his heart and shows us what's inside. In verse 10, uh, he says, listen to this humility. Listen to him humble himself. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. In one breath, Jacob both humbles himself, he admits his unworthiness, and he also thanks and praises God for his love and faithfulness that Jacob didn't deserve. Uh, he gives God all the glory for prospering him in the land of Laban because, uh, you know, when he first arrived, he came with nothing. And it was it was God who gave him everything that he has. So, so Jacob has been humbled Jacob has come to realize his sin and his unworthiness before God. Jacob has come to understand in the midst of this coming trial that it is only by God's grace that he has anything. And it will only be by God's grace and God's power that he's allowed to live in, in the face of, of Esau's rage. Now, think about where we have come. Jacob... Remember, remember when Jacob's mother, uh, try, you know, talked him into, you know, wearing the goat skins and and convincing Isaac that uh, he was, uh, you know, he was Esau and 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 lying and deceiving to get the blessing. You remember Jacob's objection uh, way back when it was, if we get caught, he's going to curse us. It wasn't, hey, this is wrong. It wasn't, hey, we can't do this. This is not right. This is against God. We shouldn't have. It was, if we get caught, he's going to curse us. All he cared about was himself. All he cared about was getting caught. He didn't care that it was right or wrong or indifferent. Well, we see a, a really different man now, don't we? I mean, he is here. He is here not just, you know, a lot of us pray, oh, God, help me when something bad happens. But Jacob's prayer is not just, oh, God, help me. He's going to ask for help against Esau here in just a second. But before any of that, he recognizes his sin. He recognizes his unworthiness for all the grace that God has bestowed upon him. It's almost like it's almost like that the next thing out of his mouth is going to be, even if you don't deliver me from Esau, you have been good to me. You have been good to me. He understands his unworthiness, and he understands the goodness of God. When he crossed the Jordan here to go to Laban's house, he had absolutely nothing. He had a walking stick. And now he is on his way back 20 years later, even in the face of the man who wanted to cheat him and make him, keep him down, God prospered him, and he is coming back home with herds and families and, and, and all of those things. And so... This is Jacob's prayer, that, that God is going to protect him from the wrath of his brother. That's what it says in verse 11. He says, after he, uh, he calls upon the faithfulness of God, he admits his unworthiness and praises God for his grace. Verse 11, he finally gets to his request. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mother's with the children. Once again, it's not it's a no-brainer. Jacob doesn't want to get killed by his brother. He's asking for God to deliver him. 
And he he plainly says, I am afraid. I am afraid that he's going to come and attack me. But once again, you're seeing here that Jacob is not, he's no longer just afraid for himself. Do you see what it said? It, he's worried about the lives of his wives and his children, the mothers with their children. He, he understands. Now, think about this for a moment. All of this is flooding back into Esau's mind. He remembers what he did. This is his fault. This is his sin that is bringing all these consequences upon him. Esau is coming for blood. I mean, he thinks Esau is coming for blood, and it's his fault for his deception and his lies and his connivings and all those things. And now it's not just Jacob that's going to pay the price. He has 11 kids. He has these four women he has this group of servants. He has his whole household. All of them are going to pay the price for Jacob's sin. Can you imagine the weight that Jacob is feeling? Understanding that because of something he did, because of uh, some injustice and sinfulness that he did 20 years ago, all of these people, as far as he knows, all these people are going to die. And they're going to pay for what he did. So he falls down upon his knees. He humbles himself before God. And he prays that God would deliver him from his brother and that God would deliver his family from his brother. And Jacob ends the prayer in verse 12 by once again claiming and trusting in the promise of God. Verse 12, he says, but you said. Now, think about the the but is there for a reason. Let me read 11 and 12 together. It says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So Jacob is telling God as he ends this prayer, you said that you would do good. You said you would do me good. You said that I would have offspring as the sand of the sea. You said that my offspring would not be able to be numbered for a multitude. That's the promise that you made. And I don't care who you are, however you want to look at it, getting killed by Esau isn't good, isn't doing me good. So remember that Jacob, he's not playing the name it and claim it game or anything like that. He's not haughty or prideful here. He is not yelling, how could you do this to me? You gave me your word at God. He comes knowing that he's unworthy and that everything that he has, everything that he ever will be or ever will have is by the grace of God and is based on the faithfulness of God to his word. And he is trusting in, look, he's trusting in his word. Look at the, look at the clauses in verse 11 and 12 and follow what it says. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Look, I fear him. I am afraid of him that he is going to come attack me, but you said I will do you good. So he's saying, look, even in the face of this fear, even in the face of this coming destruction of of my whole family and me, he says, I'm going to, I am going to trust in your promise, but you said, but you said, I will surely do you good and I will make your offspring as the sand uh, of the seashore. And so what he's, what he's doing there is ending his prayer with a, a note of with a note of trust God is faithful to his promise I am going to trust his promise and so we can we can uh, trust in that promise as well and it's not easy trust me it's not like flipping a light switch it's a continual fight and we're going to see that in the next section verses 13 through 20 that's probably where I'm going to stop so we just don't go uh, too long There is, once again, another big debate. What we're going to see here, and we'll go through it really quickly, but Jacob is going to to separate uh, different droves of herd out for gifts to be presented to Esau, and he's going to send the gift on, and then he's going to wait a little while and send another gift on. And so Esau is coming toward Jacob, and what he's going to do is he's going to run into this gift of this big herd, and then he's going to run into another gift of this herd, and he's going to run into another gift. And Jacob is doing that to, it tells us in the text here as we come to the end of it, to hopefully that he might, uh, that he might win favor with Esau. Now, once again, there's another huge debate. Should Jacob have done this? Should he have done it or should he have, you know, just left well enough alone? He's got the promise of God, trusting in God. 
um, there are many, many and smarter men than I that say Jacob is scheming again. He's plotting again. He is trying to uh, trying to buy his way out of trouble instead of trusting trusting in uh, in God's promise. Um, I don't I don't see it. I don't see that. And I, I could be wrong. And I'll take correction if I am. <clears throat> but what I see here is Jacob is. Jacob is truly repentant for what he has done to Esau. Jacob is truly um, not just trying to get out of the fire, but he is making amends to the one that he has hurt, the one that he has sinned against. Uh, He sets apart this gift for Esau. Let's read it in verse 13. He said, This is after he has just prayed. Now, remember, let's follow the context with me. I know I'm kind of bouncing around, but stay with me. The context is he sees the angels that are protecting him. Okay? He... Uh, he hears that Esau is coming, and so he splits his family into two camps so that he can protect lives. And then he falls to his knees and humbly prays to God that he would be delivered and claims the promise of God, trusting in that. And then here we're going to see he separates out this gift and sends it off to Esau. And so it says, verse 13 says, So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels, and 30 calves, 40 cows, and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Uh, These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, that means each one individually, each drove in an individual group, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Verse 19 says, he likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, this is why he did it. I may appease him. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Now, what you need to see here, what I think is happening is Jacob We've seen throughout this chapter that Jacob has been changed. He's not where he needs to be yet, and that's going to come when he has this encounter with God. Uh, But he is moving into, God is moving him in a direction uh, that is going to culminate with uh, meeting him face to face and and putting his, uh, changing his heart. And what we've seen so far is that Jacob now cherishes others' lives rather than himself. He cherishes his family's life. He separates those, uh, separates the people so that some would be saved if Esau does attack. We see that Jacob is now uh, not the prideful, arrogant man that he used to be. He's a humble man understanding that he has nothing and he must call out to God for everything uh, in his prayer. And now we see that he is a truly repentant man. He is not, he's not uh, just doing this so uh, he can get out of danger. Okay, the reality is Esau is coming anyway. And he has prayed to God and trusting in the promise of God. Uh, he could just sit back and trust that God is going to do these things. But the reality is that he is sending this gift. Uh, there are some commentators, and I don't have the information in front of me, but there are some that take, uh, add up all these different, you know, um, animals and say that this would have been the double portion of Isaac's house when Jacob left 20 years earlier. And it, it seems like, and I can't prove this to be true, but it, it kind of makes sense that Jacob is sending these, uh, these animals, these herds back to Esau as to repay him for what was stolen from him. 
Now, I can't prove that. I don't have all the evidence and the information available to me to to prove that. But it does seem like Jacob is repentant and he has not only he's not only humbled himself before God and claimed the promise of God, trusted in the promise of God. He's not only done that, but now he is making uh, restitution to his brother Esau, whom he has wronged. And so what you see here is that Jacob He's calling Esau Lord again. He's calling himself uh, Esau's servant, which is a reversal of the role that Isaac gave to each of these brothers. Uh, these gifts are going before Jacob, and they are they are to announce his repentance to Esau. They are announced to they are to announce to Esau, this is not the same man that left here twenty years ago. This is not the same one. Jacob is trying in word and in deed to appease Esau. He has called him Lord and called himself servant. He has sent word through messengers, and now he is acting on that repentance to, to give to Esau what was taken from him. And Jacob is hoping that there is a, is a possibility that Esau will accept him, that these things will appease Esau's wrath. So, the point here that we're going to see, and this is going to culminate in the next section where Jacob actually uh, is confronted by God, is that Jacob has become, he, he has been changed by God. God has used all the circumstances of Jacob's life as horrible as they are. I mean, can you imagine being deceived into working 14 years and then your wages get changed and all of these things happen? Jacob has been changed he is going home a different man than he came to Laban's house. Now, he's not hes not the man of faith yet. We're going to see that God is going to actually change his heart in the next section. And that doesn't mean Jacob's going to be perfect from that day until the day that he dies. We're going to see as Joseph and that whole story comes about, uh, Jacob is not going to be the, he's not going to be the greatest man of faith, uh, even in his old age. But what we see here is that God has brought Jacob to a point now where he is repentant, where he is humble, and where he has no choice but to trust in God. That is the kind of man, that is the kind of heart that God is, has prepared for him to come and be in the presence of. We're going to see that in the next section. He is going to come and make his presence known to Jacob. And boy, is he going to make his presence known. God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. God has spent all this time preparing Jacob's heart to meet God. And in the next section, he is going to meet God and he is going to be defeated and changed by God.